Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is discussing our first four in and first four out teams. We're also going to talk about our reactions to the Conference Player of the Year awards for the Power Five conferences, and we're also going to talk about one team that we believe could be the last one seed in the NCAA tournament. So let's start with our first four in, first four out teams. Jalen, who is one team that you believe could be a first four in team? So, bro, we have to go with my favorite team in college basketball. It was a bit of a down season this year, but UNC is playing themselves into a tournament berth not only did they beat up duke this season in the quietest fashion possible this is probably the most underhyped season in terms of that uh north carolina area rivalry but honestly the way that they've been able to finish out the season i think was huge so if you look at the back end of the season specifically like the last couple of games right it started with the loss to marquette See, so right before then, they had blew out Louisville, which kind of took over the internet for a little while because of the fact that Louisville has been so good this year. And, you know, Carlique Jones has been a guy who's been atop the ACC in a lot of different polls and won an individual award out of the ACC, actually, um, when the awards came out. Um, but starting with the Marquette loss on February 24th, UNC has been kicking and screaming to keep this spot potentially in the NCAA tournament. They beat number 15 overall Florida State, 78 to 70. Close, close loss to Syracuse. Then you whoop on Duke, 91 to 73. And then going into the ACC tournament, take down Notre Dame in in a blowout fashion might not even be like enough of a statement considering it was 101 to 59 and then big I could I guess you would call it big upset over Virginia Tech three versus six seed in this tournament and they win 81 to 73 now today when we're recording this March 12th later on tonight they're supposed to get their rematch run up with Florida State if they win that I think UNC is a shoe-in, and first four-in might not even be fair to them. They might just be a shoe-in for the tournament. But nonetheless, I think with the resume that they've gained over the last couple of games in particular, I think that they have a really, really good shot to make it into the tournament and be one of these blue blood teams that still was able to keep things afloat. There was news that came out earlier today that Kansas' season is over due to a COVID uh, due to a COVID positive test. I think that's going to be one of those blue bloods that's pretty much out. Duke is a team that is definitely out at this point so far uh, with the way things have been, especially considering the fact that now they're out of the ACC tournament. That was some other news that came out due to another COVID positive test that took place. So they can't play themselves into the tournament. I think UNC is one of those blue bloods that really still has a chance to play themselves in in comparison to the Kentucky's, Kansas's, Dukes of the world. And one of the biggest things that stands out to me overall, 10 and one at home. That's been one of their biggest calling cards is at Raleigh, they do not play. That's something that I can't necessarily say the team last year did very much. 
And Roy Williams is on the record for saying that last season's team was the worst team he's ever had. Now, mind you, that's that's getting the freshman version of Armando Baycott, who, of course, did deal with injuries a good amount, as dealing with Cole Anthony, who was a freshman phenom, despite the fact that, you know, he also dealt with injuries as well. Had guys like Leaky Black playing big minutes for them, which is kind of hard when he's not really a three-point shooter. A lot of different things that they've been able to transition from with this new regime with guys like Caleb Love at the helm. So I think UNC, this last stretch, this last month and a half that they've had in particular, I think they've played themselves strongly in the contention. And if they win tonight, I think that you might as well book it that they're going to be one of those teams in the NCAA tournament that we're looking forward to, you know, still holding it down for the Blue Bloods. And North Carolina has been playing some of their best basketball closing out this season and in the tournament, potentially even winning the tournament, the conference tournament. One of the most impressive things about this team, you mentioned one of those things being 10 at one at home, also 8-0 in quad two victories. This is a this is a North Carolina team that has won three in a row, four out of the last five, and they also had a close two-point loss to Syracuse on March 1st. Early on in the season, they played some tough competition. They played, or they lost. They played Texas, and they also played Kentucky. They lost to, they lost a close game to Texas by two. Then they had a double-digit loss to Iowa, and then they played Kentucky, and they beat. And they played Kentucky, and then they beat them by twelve. As the season progressed, they faced a lot of in-conference teams, and it didn't start out great with losses to North Carolina State and Georgia Tech. But they made up for those two losses early by sweeping Duke, upsetting Florida State, and blowing out Louisville. Coming off the second win against Duke, North Carolina has been carrying the momentum into the tournament, and they defeated Notre Dame, and then they also defeated Virginia Tech, which Jalen, you consider, or which Jalen, it was considered an upset. I think if they can defeat Florida State, much like you said, Jalen, this has to ensure a bid for. Uh, North Carolina in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, bro. I think the biggest thing going into this game, right, is that I feel like this is going to be, I mean, they've had such an interesting output from guys like Dayron Sharp. Dayron Sharp is a guy who people are starting to argue as a potential first round pick. The dude hasn't really played very much. I mean, he's played in every game, but he's only started four of the 27 games so far this season. Caleb Love was a guy who, when we started the year out, me and you talked about this when it came to UNC, that we felt like that this team took a step back offensively, which is really interesting to think about considering that the last, the last regime last season wasn't really all that great either. You know what I mean? They've been leaning on their bigs very heavily. Armando Baycott's impact on the floor has definitely been noticeable. He's their leading scorer with 12.2 points per game. Uh, eight rebounds, uh, nearly a steal, uh, nearly a steal and nearly a block per game. Garrison Brooks is a guy who, I don't know, if you look at his on-off numbers, this team is technically a little bit better when he's not on the floor, but he's their second leading scorer, tied with Caleb Love with 10.4 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, uh, nearly two assists per game, which I think is really interesting as well. One of the biggest things that I want to talk about when it comes to them is their mid-range game. It's kind of it's one of those things that's very interesting with the development of the way basketball has you know started to spread out. They're fourth in the country in two-point attempts. Fourth in the country. That means they live within the art. I think that goes to tell you that even 
though they've gotten a little bit better as a unit as opposed to last season offensively, their spacing still significantly lacks with the fact that guys like R.J. Davis, not a shooter. Uh, Leaky Black, not a shooter. You know what I mean? Those two guys in particular, Caleb Love, I would say, also with him, not a shooter. I mean, 24.6% from three on nearly five attempts per game. Like, there, there's no shooters on this team. So I think that the most interesting thing about them is going to be that if they get into the tournament, the question is, will their inability to hit the three come back to bite them against some of these better teams? Because it's been able to slide over the last couple of games, but how long can they hold that momentum? That's the question that I have for UNC because, look, I love DeMar DeRozan, but one of the biggest things that hurts him is the fact that he does not shoot the three ball. I think that for UNC as a unit, that's going to be one of those things that could be their biggest detriment in the tournament if they don't start to get that ball rolling. So, Jalen, who is another team that you believe is a first four in team? So another first four in team that I want to talk about is Utah State. And, Ryan, we had a lot of debate. We had me and you, we when we had our sit down about this we had a lot of debate about what Utah State would look like in terms of a potential tournament bid team. And a lot of it had to do with the fact of, did we think the Mountain West could get three teams, two, three teams in? That was really, that was really a debate. And I think that it's safe to say yes, I think that it's also one of my biggest things, and we're going to talk about this with uh, with Drake a little bit later, but I think it's just hard to hold out a team who nearly won 20 games this year, second in their conference. This is also arguable about teams like Colorado State and Boise State, but a team that's second in their conference, 15-4 and four, um, in conference play, 19-7 and seven overall, 10 and two at home, a lot of things that like really scream in their favor. And then when you look at what they've done so far this season, I think some of the bigger things that stand out is unfortunately they lost two straight games to Boise State, but they split with Colorado State, which I feel like is extremely important because Colorado State is right behind them in the standings. And the games that are probably the most important when you're talking about their measuring stick in the Mountain West is they won back-to-back games against number 19-ranked San Diego State, who leads their conference. Back-to-back. And the most interesting part about it is what they did defensively in those games. In the first game on January 14th, they held San Diego State to under 50 points. They had 45 points in the game overall as they won 57-45. to 45. In the second matchup, only two days later on January 16th, they held them under 60. Granted, that's a bit of a jump offensively, but they just faced this team. So there's going to be adjustments, of course, but they still held them under 60 points per game uh, or 60 under 60 points in that game and won 64 to 59. I think that's huge that they read they rode that three game winning streak along with also beating New Mexico two times beforehand, Air Force before that two times as well. Like coming into the midway point of uh, January, this team was riding really high. And of course, you know, they split with UNLV, uh, beat Fresno State. Like I mentioned earlier, had two, 
I would say bad losses. They were they were close losses, but bad losses to Boise State beats Nevada twice, beats Wyoming, beats Fresno State again. And now they're moving forward in the conference tournament after beating UNLV 74 to 53 just the other day. Ryan, this is another circumstance kind of like what we were talking about with UNC. If Utah State takes out Colorado State tomorrow, again, we're recording this on March 12th. Uh, so the game would be on the 13th at 12 o'clock. If Utah State beats Colorado State in that in that matchup, I think it's another circumstance where Utah State pretty much books themselves. They still might be a first four in, unlike UNC, where I feel like they're just a shoe in if they beat if they win against Florida State um, later on tonight. I think Utah State is a lock as a first four in team if they beat Colorado State. I think Utah State's in an interesting position because they were slated to be a first four out team. They're also they've also been slated to be a first four in team. They've been bouncing back and forth, much like a team that we're going to talk about later in Syracuse. But Utah State is on a solid winning streak right now. They've picked up some huge wins this season. Like you mentioned, they they swept ranked San Diego State. They split with Colorado State, but they also had a very competitive three point loss against BYU. I think what's going to hurt them the most is their two out-of-conference losses to VCU and South Dakota State. They're one and one in quad two games, two and four in quad one games. I think that's another thing that may hurt their chances of securing a bid. But here's why I will say, Nimi Esquita is going to have to have a great game against Colorado State. And you, you mentioned the importance of that game against Colorado State where they could potentially be considered as a first four in team or even be an automatic bid for the, for the NCAA tournament. But I think that this game against Colorado state really could determine the fate of Utah state going into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I completely agree. Like I couldn't harp on it anymore that I think that this game could be very influential on what their bid looks like. I mean, overall, it would not be completely surprising if the Mountain West got all three of these teams in, Colorado State included. But at the same time, I just don't think that with a lot of these other teams' resumes that it's just, hey, man, it's tough. Like, I feel like they're going to have to really book their ticket to be able to get in. And I'm not saying they have to win the whole tournament, but I'm saying they're going to have to continue to notch up these high-level wins. And Colorado State is the team nipping at their heels within the conference. So if they can take them out in the conference tournament, you save yourself a bit of a, uh, an issue and it gives you a better chance when the committee's taking a look at your overall resume. So Jalen, who is the third team that you believe is a first four in team? Yeah. So this is two of, this is one of two sec teams that we're going to talk about in this section in particular. And I'm going to start with Ole Miss because Ole Miss is the team out of the two we're going to talk about that. I actually feel the most confident about in terms of their ability to be one of those last four teams in for the tournament. So a couple of things that stand out, obviously first thing that comes to mind is sixth in the sec. Now the X, the sec is arguably you could probably say the third best conference so far this season behind, I would say probably the big 12 and the big 10. Those are the two that stand at the top, especially with the fact that Oklahoma state has been, you know, significantly, I guess, quote unquote, overachieving when you factor in that they're not going to be able to be tournament eligible. So they've kind of been knocking pegs down in the big 12. 
despite the fact that they're not going to really be able to join the dance. And across the board, the Big 12 has been relatively uh, relatively good. And then, of course, the Big 10, <laughs> all the big boys are over in that squad, uh, over in that area right now. But I would say right behind them is the SEC. So they're behind, they're behind teams like Alabama, Arkansas, who had a surprisingly good year, LSU, who Cam Thomas and those guys have played really well, Tennessee, who had a very slow start to their season, considering that they started a bit late but definitely came on relatively strong um, as the season went along. And then of course, Florida. So when you look, so keep that in mind in terms of the teams that they're behind. So if you go down their resume and you look at some of the things that they've done so far this season, they they've had some interesting run-ins in conference play. Um, A lot of unfortunate small time losses. I mean, to start off, to kick off January, you know, they lose 75 to 61 to LSU. They lose 72 to 63 to Mississippi, 78 to 74 to Georgia. That one hurts. But then they start to kind of get things together a smidge. They beat teams like Mississippi State and Texas A&M, lose to Arkansas. I thought that would have been a huge win closing out January if they could have gotten that one. Then you lose to Georgia again. But then, again, this is the thing that makes them so polarizing. To kick off February, you beat Tennessee, you beat Auburn. This is with Sharif, Sharif Cooper now, which is, you know, a guy who had he played the entire season could have arguably been in the SEC player of the year race. You beat Missouri, which I think is actually a relatively good win as it is. South Carolina, you win against as well. Lose to Mississippi State again. That one's rough. You beat Missouri again. Lose to Vanderbilt. Beat Kentucky who's played relatively well. They, they, they were a team that started out, they peaked pretty early in terms of conference play. They were a team that started 3-0 and in conference play and then kind of dipped off. But nonetheless, I think when you talk about in conference play, what Kentucky was able to do, beating them is a good look. And then you close out the season with a win over Vanderbilt. And now they're progressing through the tournament. They already beat South Carolina and they take on LSU today. Now, Mississippi is a little bit diff- a little bit different. Ole Miss is one of those teams in comparison to the first two teams we talked about where getting through the first two rounds is not going to be enough. This is a team that I think is legitimately going to have to kind of run the table a bit. But this LSU matchup could move the needle in their favor in a way where they might not have to necessarily win in the next round but they got to make it at least look pretty. You know what I mean? The way they beat LSU, and this is going to be one of those circumstances where it's not about winning the game. It's the way you win the game. That could be the kind of circumstances that helps Ole Miss in. They're just a really polarizing team. If you look at their overall, uh, if they look at their overall resume. And Ole Miss is another team that's on a winning streak. They've won eight out of the last 10 games. And and in that streak, they defeated Tennessee, Missouri, Auburn, and Kentucky. They also swept Auburn and Missouri for the season. And they have a couple of out-of-conference games that were also close losses. They lost to Dayton by three and Wichita State by four. And Ole Miss has a solid combined quad one and quad two record. They're an even five, they're an even 500 record, eight and eight in both quads, three and four in quad one, five and four in quad two. And I think when you talk about the the impact of this LSU game tonight. In their first game against LSU, there was one double-digit score, and that was Austin Crowley. 
Ole Miss shot 35% from the field, 30% from three in that game. And I think if they can shoot the ball well against LSU, especially if they get a guy like Devontae Shuler, get, if they get a guy like Devontae Shuler the ball early and he gets, he gets going early, Ole Miss could be a team that advances not only to the next round, but to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think, like I said beforehand, I mean, Devontae Shuler is the guy in here for them. Um, Excuse me. I think when you look at what they're going to need to finish out the season, the most important player is going to be Devontae Shuler because I feel like he's their closer. Not only because, like, you know, he's known for the buzzer beater that had Twitter talking and John Morant and Zion Williamson, who are former teammates of his, um, buzzing on, you know, Instagram and Twitter about about it. I think he's legitimately their closer because he's probably their best on-ball shot creator. And I think that's going to be really important against, you know, high-quality teams in the SEC as they try to progress through this tournament. I think one of the most interesting things about this game is less about the implications of the matchup and just the, the, the pure 1v1 matchup that is Cam Thomas versus Devontae Shuler going basket for basket because I don't know if there's going to be a ton of defense in this game but I do think that the one-on-one challenge between those two is going to be really interesting and I think we could see some fireworks maybe even a career high from somebody because we know what's at stake and there are two very high volume scorers that I think can be pretty dangerous with the chips on the line. Moving on now to our final team our final first foreign team in Georgia. Jalen, why do you believe Georgia is a first four in team? Oh, so this is where I am from. So I'm going to try my hardest to avoid all biases here, talking about my uh, home state team here. But Georgia, Georgia's in an interesting situation because, you know, you just heard me sit here and say all of this stuff about how Ole Miss might have to potentially run the table in order for them to truly make the tournament. Well, Georgia is in probably an even bigger predicament when it comes to those circumstances because they're even further down the totem pole. See, Ole Miss was behind some of the best teams, not only in the conference, but in the country. All teams that are pretty much shoe-ins out of the SEC to get in the tournament, Alabama, Arkansas, LSU, Tennessee, Florida. I think we can safely assume that they all will be in. Now, behind Mississippi is Missouri, Kentucky, Mississippi State, and Georgia at 10. See, that's where things get kind of dicey. Now, what I will say is 7-11 in conference play, 14-12 and 12 overall, 12-5 and 5 at home, which is relatively impressive as well, I think. The biggest things that kind of stand out to me is the kind of wins and the close losses that they've had, right? So we were just talking about Ole Miss. On January 16th, they beat Ole Miss 78-74. to They beat Kentucky 63-62, to a team that's been pretty much on a roll for a majority of their conference play season. They, they, they beat them by one. Granted, it was by one, but it was done nonetheless. You beat Auburn on February 2nd. You beat Vanderbilt. You have a close loss to Tennessee on February 10th. You beat Missouri. You, you have a close loss to Florida on February 20th, 70-63. You beat LSU on February 23rd, 91-78. to I mean, 
they're a really interesting team. Now, here's my only thing. Unfortunately for them, and this is the kind of caveat about, you know, us planning these ahead of time. This is one of those teams that we picked earlier on uh, when we kind of mocked up this idea. Georgia lost to Missouri the other day, 73 to 70. So I would not be surprised if any of the teams that we pick as our first teams out end up usurping Georgia because of the fact that Georgia was put out in the first round. If Georgia had performed a lot better in the SEC tournament, at least gotten past the first round, probably would have had to play past the second round as well. But because they were put out in the first round, this is probably the team that I'm the least confident about in this first four in, just merely out of the fact that I feel like being 10th in your conference is already hard to overcome. But then following that up by losing your last three games of the season to South Carolina, Alabama, and then in the first round of the SEC tournament to Missouri, if there was anything that could put you out, that little run would be it right there, especially for a team with a very slim margin for error considering they were 10th in the conference. So I think Georgia still, based on quality wins, could have a chance. But this is the team that I'm the least confident about simply out of the fact that the end of their season probably is going to leave a bit of a bad taste in, in voters' mouths when you look at the way things closed out, and especially because of the fact that none of the losses were great losses. I mean, the Missouri loss, it doesn't look very good, even with it being a three-point game. And the other two games were within anywhere between 10 and for against South Carolina, a 19-point loss. Like those are not great ways to end out the season. And in what feels in what feels like a wide open SEC, Georgia's been a team that has been able to pull off some sneaky wins this year against Auburn, LSU, Cincinnati, and, and Kentucky. But they've also been competitive in some of their close in-conference losses, like the loss to Florida, the loss to Tennessee, and the loss to Alabama. And they were also competitive in their last loss to Missouri, which was their first tournament game, their first conference tournament game. And they lost that game by three. Severe Wheeler and Tamani Kamara both had double doubles in that game. Uh, 14 points and 13 assists for Wheeler, 13 points and 10 rebounds for Kamara. And you mentioned two out of the three things that are hurting Georgia. The fact that, you know, 7-11 in conference play, they've lost three in a row to South Carolina, Alabama, and Missouri. Two and six on the road is another thing that hurts them in the tournament. Mm -hmm. What may benefit them, however, is how competitive they've been in some of these games against some of the better teams like LSU, Alabama, Tennessee, and Florida. So I think that could make a strong consideration for a bid despite the first round exit in the, in the conference tournament. Yeah, Georgia's a really interesting team because of the fact that, like you said, it was a very, like, bipolar season overall. Like, they've had some very interesting wins, but also some losses that kind of just have some head scratches behind it. Like I said, the loss to South Carolina was one of those losses that they just could not afford to have. Um, I also think that that game against Alabama to finish off the season on March 6th, that could have been crucial because that, if anything, could have been ticket-punching – that win over Alabama could have easily swung their favor around. So I think getting blown out by South Carolina and then losing to Alabama in that final game, those already kind of were slowly diminishing their chances. I think they only kind of dug their grave 
by losing to Missouri. So again, I still think they have a chance because of how polarizing their, their overall schedule was. But at the same time, like I said, that's what I mean when I say that I'm on the fence about this one. This might be the one that I have the most debate behind because of the fact that it can go either way. So moving on now to our first four out teams. And the first four and the first team that we're going to talk about is Maryland. Jalen, why do you believe that Maryland is a first four out team? So Maryland's a first four out team because the same way we talk about you know, being polarizing from the aspect of teams like Ole Miss or teams like Georgia, Maryland is like the biggest swing that you'll see, you know, so far this season. I mean, let's go through a lot of their like conference plays starting back in, let's say, late December. So let's start with that. So close loss to Purdue, who's ranked 20th in the country. You beat Wisconsin. You lose to Michigan. That one's the most understandable. You follow that with a loss to Indiana. Then you lose to Iowa. You beat Illinois. And this is where me and you started having our first questions, not only about Maryland as a, as a wishy-washy team. I think we also had like Brooks on for this when we discussed them a little bit. But you get a dynamic win over Illinois, who honestly, when Maryland beat Illinois, that's when we started getting worried about Illinois, right? Blowout Wingate, you lose to Michigan again. Once again, that's an understandable loss considering Michigan is one of the top four teams in the country. You beat Minnesota, lose to Wisconsin, but then you beat Purdue. Like you lose to Minnesota and you lose to Wisconsin, but then you beat Purdue by one point, 61 to 60. Follow that up by losing to Penn State. Again, questionable. Ohio State, you lose to them 73-65. You beat Minnesota again. You beat Nebraska two times in a row. Then you take out Rutgers, beat Michigan State, which I think is actually still a relatively big win, even with the fact that they're not as great as maybe in years past. You lose to Northwestern, lose to Penn State to close out the regular season. It's like, what like it just it just doesn't it doesn't add up then you beat michigan state in the first round of the big 10 tournament and then you lose by 13 to michigan in the second round it's like they are so there are so many of these losses that i think they wish they could get back there are so like losing to northwestern 60 to 55 i think they wish they could have got that back I think that's one of those that they wish they could have closed the deal on losing to Penn state 55 to 50. I think they really wish they could have gotten that one back losing to Wisconsin 55 to 61. These are all games. And, and Ryan, I'm going to let you be the one to rant on their inability to hit three point shots. But all I'm going to say is this is how, you know, that the fall from grace in the NCAA can fall upon anybody regardless, like whether you're factoring any circumstances, turnover, whatever the case is. And it's like this, Maryland did not get to go to the tournament last year because of COVID-19, obviously last season, they had arguably their best season in years. 
in years. 24 and 7 overall, 14 and 6 in the conference, first in the Big Ten. They were 12th in the AP poll before the season was eventually stopped. 12th in the AP poll before the season was eventually stopped. This season, 16 and 12, 9 and 11 in, uh, in the Big Ten, which is only eighth in the conference. Now, my one argument as to this big fall would maybe maybe come from the the fact that Jalen Smith is an NBA player and Jalen Smith was a very dominant inside presence for them last season. And maybe they were just truly missing that, that offensive uh, presence down low, because I don't think Dr. Scott is that guy at six eleven playing big minutes for them. Um, Jalen Smith was a true big Bruno Fernando the year before that true, true big. This team doesn't have a single guy at 6'10 playing big minutes. Like, their they're only guy playing big minutes at the forward spot that I would say would fall into that category would probably be either Dante Scott or, I guess, Jairus Hamilton. That's not really saying much because in comparison to the other two guys I named in Bruno Fernando and Jalen Smith, they're not NBA-caliber talents. So... The fall from grace for Maryland has been a sight to see nonetheless. But like I said, I'm going to let you go into their three-point shooting because if anything shot them in the foot, that's probably their biggest issue this this season, not their inside presence play. Where do I begin with Maryland? I've said that Maryland is the most inconsistently consistent team in the regular season. (laughs) And this year they picked up they picked up some great wins. They had they had to win against Wisconsin, and they also defeat Michigan State, which I thought was huge. That Michigan State win was part of a five game winning streak that included wins over Minnesota, Nebraska twice, Rutgers, and Michigan State. Like I mentioned earlier, this year they lost a lot of games that they weren't supposed to, and this is where this is where as a Maryland fan. I hate these types of losses. You get swept by Penn State. You lose to Northwestern. And then you lose a close game against Purdue. Jalen, I'll be honest, I don't know where they stand. They could be a 9 seed, a 10 seed, an 11 seed, a 12 seed, or they could be out entirely. But remember what I said when we were covering the Maryland basketball scene for the first time. Jalen, you asked the question, is Mark Turgeon going to be fired after this after this season? Remember what I said about Maryland's chances in the NCAA tournament. What I say, Jalen, if they don't make the Final Four, Mark Turgeon is gone. You did say that. There's pressure for Maryland to win the conference tournament and go far in the NCAA tournament. They're one of the best defensive teams in the in the NCAA, but they're one of the worst three point shooting teams. What gets me more frustrated than Maryland losing? Maryland missing three-point shots. Back-to-back games where they shot 30% from three against Michigan State and Michigan in the tournament. So why are they, why are they even attempting more threes? This is one of the reasons why, as a Maryland fan, I get angry. And honestly, for those reasons, I don't think they're going to get in. These losses to Northwestern and Penn State, they're very bad losses. I think they... They almost overshadow the great wins that they had against Wisconsin and Illinois. I mean, I I agree with you. I mean, I said it back then that I thought that the final four take was a, a bit 
a bit hyperbolic just out of the fact that with a COVID-ridden season, inability to be able to really get your guys going together in terms of, you know, off-season workouts, building chemistry, things of that. Now, my of course, the easy argument against that is fit, apparently, if you look at the statistics, 56.2% of minutes played and 48.6% of their scoring returned from last season. Now, again, Jalen Smith was a lottery pick in last season's draft, and they lost him. When you lose a lottery pick to the draft you're gonna have a very uh interesting follow-up season I think we can say that about Georgia who without Anthony Edwards honestly took a bit of a dip I mean they took a significant dip and although we feel that they're going to be a first four team in they could they're they could easily we could easily loop Georgia and Maryland in the same boat as being so polarizing that it could it, it could go any way. This team could be a 10, 11, or 12 seed, or they could be one of the first four teams on their flight back home, on their flights back home. So I think with Maryland, it's very interesting when it comes to Turgeon's job. I think that we have to at least see maybe one more season that's not COVID-ridden to be able to get a true test as to what turgeon is moving forward um i think another thing that'll be really interesting with the way things have went this season is what the recruiting process will look like for this team because the big 10 is the conference to be in you know based on what we've seen this year the big 10 is where it's at so i think that maryland will be able to attract more guys and of course i'm crossing my fingers when i say this because i'm hoping that we can get some more intriguing uh talent on this team I'm going to steal a quote from Brooks, and it's not really a quote. It's more of a point that Brooks made when we discussed the Maryland basketball scene beforehand. I really pray that Maryland starts to tackle some of these Maryland recruits, these Maryland bred guys, and start to really build up this team. I think that one of the biggest things that Mark Turgeon could do to be able to really revitalize this program is to bring in, like, enter interstate play interstate talent to the team i think bringing maryland guys in maryland bred guys in will kind of build up a significant culture for the maryland program and yeah man i think recruiting wise this this season this offseason right here might be one of the most crucial for turgeon's you know overall career moving forward as a Maryland Terrapins coach so I understand I'm with you that he's on the hot seat I don't know if he gets fired this offseason I agree that he's on the hot seat though so I think that this is one of those offseasons where they're going to have to really pull out the stops and zero in on getting recruits that can produce so I think the one thing that I want to also talk about something that Brooks mentioned the one thing that he mentioned was that they missed out on Hunter Dickinson. Hunter Dickinson went to DeMatha, ends up going to Michigan. Look at him now. He's the Big Ten freshman of the year. That's a huge, huge miss for Maryland, for Maryland, for yeah, for Maryland recruiting. So I hope they improve in recruiting. I hope they go out and get four, four star, five star guys. But until then, I, I still think he's on the hot seat regardless. But moving on now to our next team that we're going to talk about, another first four-out team that we believe is a first four-out team. 
uh, is Drake. Jalen, what what about Drake do you believe is a first four out team? So, I mean, I'm going to let you go a little bit more into what their resume says. Ryan, I'm just going to read a couple of things. And you can take what you already know about Drake, what we've seen about Drake so far this season, and then take what I've said, what I've read off, and we can kind of decipher this together, you know, on podcast live. Okay, so March 4th, Matthew Bain of Des Moines Register put together this very interesting article that takes in uh, Darian DeVries. He's the coach, obviously, of Drake. Um, He takes a lot of his quotes and kind of puts a lot of them in perspective. He also polls or kind of takes perspectives from a a lot of college basketball writers who do a lot of what we're doing right now in terms of focusing on these first four in, first four out teams. And so one of the things that was mentioned in the article, this was on March 4th that it came out. It said, Drake enters Arch Madness on the right side of the bubble in in most NCAA tournament projections. ESPN's Joe Lenardi pegs the Bulldogs as a number 11 seed playing Michigan State in the first four. He considers Drake one of his last four in alongside Tom Izzo Spartans Boise State and Xavier. We'll actually talk about two of those teams, uh, or one of those two teams that uh were uh towards the back end of there a little bit later. Says CBS Sports Jerry Palm has Drake as a number 12 seed playing St. Louis in the first four. So he also sees Drake in the last four in with the Billikens, that's St. Louis, obviously, VCU and North Carolina, a team that we discussed as one of the first four in as well. Says USA Today, Shelby Mass projects Drake as a number 11 seed more safely in the field, not playing one of the first four games. The Bulldogs put themselves in a more precarious NCAA tournament position by losing the final regular season game to Bradley, which has a net ranking of number 159. But they're still in an inviolable spot for mid-major team. Even if they don't win the conference tournament, they could still secure a big bid to the big dance. And one of the biggest things that they touched on was that to maintain their hopes, they would not have they would have to avoid losing in the first two rounds. Well, Ryan, mission accomplished. You know what I mean? Like that that was one of the main things that did get done over the last couple of days. They beat Illinois State in the first round and then they beat Northern Iowa. Um, along with the fact that they, you know, they just failed, they actually just fell to Bradley on the seventh. So they got out of the first two rounds. Now, do we think they should have run? Do we think that they probably needed to run the table a little bit more considering that Missouri Valley, the, the Missouri Valley conference doesn't seem like one that's going to have multiple teams in the tournament. Yes, I think that Drake probably should have went a little bit further along. But I think that Drake is one of those teams similar to what we talked about with like Georgia or Maryland, for example, where now Drake has a little bit better of a resume if you're looking at it from a record standpoint, but obviously you're going to touch into their quality of victories, which is like the most important thing. 
But when you look at all those lineups, 10, 11, 12, like they're anywhere in that mix, according to experts. Uh, can do you mind taking their re- their their resume into detail and kind of explaining a lot more as to why first four outfits them more? Because I think we're going against the grain, pretty much is what I'm saying. I feel like we're going against the grain, and I feel like there's some good points to be made. But I mean, it's really interesting on both sides. So Drake was poised for an undefeated season this year. They started the season 18 and 0, finished out the season 25 and 4. But the one thing that you touched on, and I'm going to talk about it more, is their quality of wins. And they played a lot of in-conference teams this year. So early in the season, I believe it was the first game of the season, they picked up a nice win over Kansas State. They also beat Loyola of Chicago, which was huge considering that they're a 25 team or a top 25 team. But look at who they played in the conference and who they they beat in the conference. Loyola Chicago is a top 25 team. We mentioned how great of a team they were. We, we know they're going to make a, a, a long run in the NCAA tournament. Missouri State, another solid team at 17 and 7. Indiana State, 15 and 10. They had a pretty good season. But look at the rest of the teams outside of Drake, Loyola Chicago, Missouri State, and Indiana State. Every other team they've beaten has a below 500 record. I'm talking about Northern Iowa, Evansville, Valparaiso, Bradley, who who um, just upset Drake at the end of the season, mm-hmm. Southern Illinois and Illinois State. And even though they beat Loyola of Chicago, they only beat them by one in what seemed like a very low-scoring overtime game, 51-50. to 50. And then they lost to them 81-54. to 54. So I think what's really hurting this team is the lack of of quality wins. And I think because of that, it's going to be tough for Drake to make the tournament. I think the very interesting thing about Drake, and I think the thing that may lean more in their favor, remember that article came out on the 4th, today is the 12th. So obviously a lot has happened since then. But I think one of the biggest things that touched that 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 stands out to me is when you talk about their quality of victories, right? You talked about them beating Loyola Chicago by one. That's their probably their best loss. My my thought process would be comparing their best. I mean, their their their. I, I apologize. That's their best win. The way I would look at it is comparing their best win to their worst loss, right? I would view their 10-point loss to Bradley as arguably their worst loss of the season. I think that's obviously relatively debatable. Um, But, I mean, Bradley is just a lot further down the totem pole um, in terms of the conference standing, 6-12 and in the conference, 12-16 and overall, 2-9 and on the road. Like, from a resume standpoint, they're pretty down there. Now they have a loss to Northern Iowa that stands out as well, but Northern Iowa's a little bit further up the standing. So I agree with you. This might be one of those circumstances where the quality of competition you face due to your conference has put them in a precarious situation where it doesn't really look that impressive to walk around saying that you are 25 and four on the season now 
I think you could maybe make that same argument about Loyola Chicago to a certain extent, but they're also a top 25 team for a reason. So that part is not nearly as arguable, right? Plus at the end of the day, if you're the best team in your conference, you get an automatic bid if you finish the finish things out in the tournament. So um, Drake is interesting, bro. I mean, Ryan, before we even started the podcast, I remember texting you and saying, I think Drake might be a first four in team. Like I literally was like right before the podcast, I was even kind of like still on the fence about it. So, I mean, 15 and three in the conference, 14 and one um, at home, nine and two on the road. Man, they, they probably out of the four teams that we talked about toward between this team and some of the back end teams that we talked about, like Maryland, Ole Miss, and um georgia out of those four teams drake might have the best chance from a record standpoint they're better from a conference uh matchup standpoint they performed better throughout the season i think if we had to rank them I would maybe put Drake at the top as one of those teams to steal that last four in spot. And then I would maybe follow that up with maybe like Ole Miss, then Maryland question mark, Georgia, like Maryland, Georgia, like on a similar level. So like Drake, if you cannot tell already, this is like one of the most on the fence picks in terms of the first four out for me, because of the fact that Drake's resume is interesting but not impressive if that makes any sense because of the fact that they haven't really beat anybody, but they did run the table for a majority of the time throughout the season. Now I think that big loss to Bradley, that might be the nail in the coffin potentially, but we'll have to see. So moving on to our third team in Boise state, Jalen, why do you believe Boise state is a first four out team? Um, Man, this one's kind of easy. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, you can't close the season out like this. You can't close the season out like this. Uh, two back-to-back losses to San Diego State. Completely understandable. San Diego State, 19th in the country, one of the better teams in the conference, one of the best teams in the country last season that got a lot of guys returning. But then you lose the Fresno State. Can't have that. That's one of those things that really will stand out overall. And it hurts even more when not only did you close the season out on a three-game losing streak with Fresno State being a nail in the coffin at the end of the year, you went into the conference tournament as a first four-out team. This wasn't according to me. This was according to odds makers, people who really pay attention to this on a deeper level and to the point that some of these people fall in the voting committee committee for some of this stuff. They were already projected as a first four out team going into the Mountain West tournament. You lose the Nevada 89 to 82 in the first round. You're done, son. Like that's, it's simple. You're done, son. If you close the year out, on a three-game losing streak, I get it. You know, right before then, they were on a four-game on a four-game winning streak with two wins against UNLV and two two wins against Utah State. I think that's huge. 
They've also got a they've got a split against Colorado State. I think that's very intriguing as well. But again, they were already on the bubble essentially going into the conference tournament, and they didn't do themselves any favor. And I think Nevada now has a chance to pretty much lock themselves in as an NCAA tournament team playing off of Boise State's failure to move past the first round and kind of build back some confidence in the committee and to potentially give them a chance. So I think Boise State kind of dug their grave in these last three games and their last three games of the regular season and then the loss to Nevada in the first round, that, that was it. You know what was interesting? In our planning session meeting on Monday, Jalen and I had a debate about Boise State and Utah State as first four in, first four out teams. And the debate went on for about an hour because we we, we really (laughs) couldn't decide who was a first four or if they were a first four in, first four out team. And we we had to take a deep look at the schedule. And Jalen pointed it out, six-game losing streak. You get swept by Utah State. You get swept by by San Diego State. You lose to Fresno State, and then you lose to Nevada in the first round. It's, it's just interesting considering that they had a strong start to the season and they picked up some good wins this year as well. They picked up a win over Colorado State in a, in a split with them. And then they also beat BYU, something that Utah State didn't do. Um, their quad one their quad one record is two and four. Quad two record is two and three. And you, you pretty much said it best, Jalen. I think that because Boise State was, wasn't able to win these past couple of games, it really gives a team like Nevada – a chance to be a tournament team. I think that because Boise State lost these last couple of games, it's going to hurt their chances over another Mountain West team in Utah State. Because even though Utah State lost to BYU, they have a pretty good chance to get in considering that Utah State swept Boise State and they swept San Diego State. Yeah, and to kind of further elaborate on what Ryan was talking about in terms of our po- our, our planning session discussion, first of all, he's not lying. <laughs> it was legitimately about an hour, just stuck on those two teams overall. And our logic pretty much was out of those two teams, whatever team we pick that doesn't go in, the other team obviously would be one of the last teams in. And that's where the logic came from. That's part of why we had Utah State in our first four in and Boise State out. So with that being the case, I mean, they only made made things easier for us in terms of making the, this decision when they lost to Nevada yesterday. Like we were like we were really kind of on the fence about it beforehand. Like I said before, man, they didn't do themselves any favors. They didn't do themselves a solid at all. And with that being the case, they're now in a position right now where I think they're going to just barely miss the tournament. So moving on to our last team in Syracuse, Jalen, why do you believe Syracuse is a first four out team? So I think it just has a lot to do with the fact that past the first six to seven teams in the ACC, I think once you hit Louisville, the bar in the ACC gets kind of questionable. 
And it's not necessarily from like the team's play because like NC State was 13 and 10. Duke was 13 and 11. Uh, Notre Dame was 11, 15. They weren't as good, but they were still relatively okay. Pittsburgh, 10 and 12. They were a team that kind of was ragged by injuries with the fact that their best player missed some significant time. I think that was a team that could have been a little bit better this season. But I have a tough time seeing the ACC getting seven teams in. I mean, if we were talking about the Big Ten, this would be like an easy no-brainer kind of situation because the Big Ten is just so deep and they've been so dynamic from the very start of conference play. But the biggest thing that's that's working in Syracuse's favor is 9-7 and in the conference. That's above 500. That's good. 16-9 and overall, 13-1 and at home. I think that's one of those things that would be like maybe potentially play in their favor. But like if we go down some of their games, like I don't know, like some of these losses, Ryan, are just like beyond me. Like I know Georgia Tech has the player of the year in the ACC, but like they lost 84 to 77. You lost to Duke, who is like out. Duke is out. They've been out for like two weeks. You lose to Clemson earlier on the season. That one kind of dicey. Barely beat NC State. Got whooped on by Virginia. Got whooped on. Uh, or uh, No, I mean, not whooped on. They technically did the whooping when it came to Virginia Tech earlier on in the season on January 23rd. That was 78 to 60. Got whooped on by Pittsburgh. That was the one I was looking at. <laughs> 96 to 76 on January 16th. Lost to UNC. Like I said, they lost to Pittsburgh twice, so they, they got swept by Pittsburgh. That that stands out a lot as well. Lost to Rutgers. That would have been one of their nice out-of-conference uh, games. That if they had locked that up, it maybe would have played a little bit more in their favor. I don't know, man. Their, their resume is just not impressive. Like, it's okay. It's all right. But, like, there's some of these wins that they – there's some of these losses that they could have really used. Like like I said, beating Rutgers as one of their, like, better out-of-conference matchups against Big Ten competition, they lost 79-69. to 69. That could have been really beneficial if they had won that game. I mean, again, you got swept by Pittsburgh, lost to UNC. Like I said, it's just, it's just not impressive. I don't know. It's just not impressive. So this was another debate that I had with Jalen about whether or not Syracuse was the first four in, first four out team, because it was just deciding between uh, Xavier and Syracuse for who would be the last first four in team. But we ultimately decided to go with Syracuse. And this was a team that has been bouncing around from first four in to first four out. And I think that this team's a first four out team. One and seven in quad one games, but they have a great home record at 13 and one but the best team that they beat at home was Virginia Tech. And that was their only quad one win. Their only home loss was to Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh beat them without Justin Champagne. And then they lose to Pittsburgh on the road by 20 in a game where Justin Champagne played and had a double double. Their other bad loss was to Duke. But the thing that may help them get into the NCAA tournament is the conference tournament. They beat NC state, Buddy Beheim has a huge 27-point game. They also lost to Virginia, but that was on a buzzer beater. There's hope, but there's not a lot of hope for Syracuse. Mm-mm. 
I think this is one of those teams that would have probably had to not necessarily run the table, but I think if they had beat Virginia, that would have probably flipped the script. And I think, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you can express your own personal opinion on this really quickly before we move on to player, um, move on to player of the year uh, nominee slash winners, I guess, for each of the Power Five conferences. But when you look at Syracuse's circumstances, do you think if they beat Virginia, we would have had them as the first four of uh, first four in team over Georgia, who was probably the team we were the most on the fence about? I'm going to say no, because if we're looking at the big picture, I think one win over Virginia doesn't change anything. Um, it would be like Maryland, for example. We know Maryland beat uh, Illinois, but if we look at their overall big picture, they lost to Penn State twice and they lost to Northwestern, lost a close game to Purdue. It's almost the same case with Maryland, where I feel like it really doesn't change anything. Fair enough. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I mean, I understand overall, like I said, Syracuse hasn't like done very much impressively. So moving on now to our reactions to the conference player of the year. So the winners of the conference player of the year for the power five conferences are for the big 10, we have Luca Garza for the PAC 12. We have Evan Mobley for the, Big 12, we have Kate Cunningham. For the SEC, we have Herbert Jones. And then for the ACC, we have Moses Wright. Jalen, what are your reactions to these awards? Ryan, anybody who has listened to college basketball content on the Hoop Talk podcast knows how I feel about Ayo Desumu. So the fact that Luca Garza is a two-time Big Ten Player of the Year is beyond me. Now, Luca Garza, in 27 games, had 23.8 points per game, 8.7 rebounds per game, 1.7 assists. Ayodesuma had 20.9 points per game, 6.2 rebounds per game, and 5.2 assists per game. Personally, I feel as though Ayo DeSumo had a bigger impact on his team's winning than Luca Garza did. I would even go on the record, hot take potentially, that I believe that Joe Wieskamp was Iowa's best player this season. I think he's the better NBA prospect moving forward. And I honestly believe that he was their best player this year. I think his ability to knock down, catch and shoot threes. I think his ability to take guys off the dribble a little bit. The fact that he was a guy that was able to control and dictate so much gravity on the court. Luca Garza is not doing, I mean, we talked about this early in the year. He gets 20 and 10 in a win. He's the guy who's credited for the W. He gets 20 and 10 in a loss. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really fall on anybody in particularly. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where like with Luca Garza, he's going to get his numbers regardless. You know what I mean? Like he, he, he throughout the season was getting his numbers regardless. 
one of the bigger things that stood out to us when we talked about Luca Garza early in the season was their game against UNC. In their game against UNC, Joe Wieskamp and their ability to shoot the three ball that in that game, that was that was what got them over the hump. I'll even go back and pull up the pull up that game specifically because that was the one that we talked about kind of at large when we were talking about this. When they won ninety three to eighty in that game, Wieskamp had 19, 19 and nine. Jordan Bohannon had 24. Luca Garza had 16 and 14. Do you want to know what they did from three, Ryan? They shot 42.5% with 17 of 43s made in that game. They made 17 threes as opposed to UNC's six. They made more threes in that game than UNC attempted. UNC only had 15. Now, I know UNC is not the measuring stick or anything, but this is one of those examples that we touched on earlier on in the season where I look at them and just kind of wonder, like, yo, this team is elite. Whether Luca Garza plays at a high level or not, because if they can shoot the three well, which a guy like Bohan and a guy like Wieskamp allows them to do, this team automatically becomes more dynamic. So I don't even believe personally, again, hot take central potentially, but I don't believe that he might have even, might have even been the most impactful player on his team because I think Wieskamp's ability to shoot the three is such a high clip was what freed up a lot of other things on the court, not only for Garza, but others around him like Bohannon. I think Ayudisumu had a, a very, very large stamp on this season, especially with the mere fact that if you look at the way things went for them, now I know everybody will say Tim Frazier went off against Michigan and they won with Ayu DeSumo out. I completely understand that. Kofi Coburn has came on very strong. But let's remember, Adam Miller has been a, a, a virtual no-show all season in that backcourt. Tim Frazier has been making up most of the minutes in that regard. In terms of the backcourt, the guy who dictates the most gravity, the guy who draws the most, the guy that people write up the game plans for is Ayu Desumu. And he's improved as a shot creator. He's improved as a facilitator this season. I think Ayu Desumu is the best player in the Big Ten. And I'm not going to say it's hands down, but I definitely think that Ayu Desumu should have been the one that was selected in this case. I think that one is the biggest head scratcher out of all of them. Honestly, we could probably make a case for Chris Duarte winning the Pac-12 of the Year award over Evan Mobley. But this one was the biggest head scratcher, mainly for all the reasons that you mentioned. I think Ayodesumu has staked his claim better than Luca Garza. I know I said earlier in the season after the North Carolina game, I think that Luca Garza is the best player in the country. I thought Luca Garza had the best chance to win National Player of the Year. Ayu Desumu is the guy for Illinois. His whole reason for staying at Illinois is making sure that this team gets back to the tournament for the first time in a very long time. Ayu Desumu makes things happen. He makes plays when Illinois needs it most. And the fact is, 
he's been the guy that's been consistent all season long, unlike Adam Miller, who we've criticized on this podcast multiple times. Because the guy that we saw have those great games against NCANT and Chicago State isn't the same guy now when it when when it came time to play an in-conference game. If we're looking at an overall bigger picture, I would assume it was the guy. I mean, if you even want to elaborate further, Illinois had a better season. They were second in the Big Ten behind Michigan State, 16 and four in the conference, as opposed to Iowa State, 14 and six in the conference. It was 20 and six overall to 20 and seven. I know that one's comparable. 11 and two at home versus Iowa, that's 14 and two at home, comparable. Nine and three on the road for Illinois, as opposed to six and four on the road for Iowa. Illinois finished higher in the most difficult, the most competitive conference in the NCAA. They finished higher than Iowa. I feel as though Illinois relies more on on Ayu Desumu than Iowa relies on Luca Garza. I think the combination of those things, and of course, what I was saying, Ryan, I wasn't saying that Luca Garza isn't an NBA prospect. I just think Joe Wieskamp might might translate better that was like more so how i feel but nonetheless i I get your point regardless i just think that overall i think that ayu desumu was an overall player uh, overall better player he's a guy who who obviously dominates the ball a little bit more with the fact that he plays a guard forward position so obviously we get to see a little bit more flashy play from him but he is a guy who is very impactful for this team coming back. I think if you had to take Ayu Desumo out, he went to the NBA last season, and Adam Miller was supposed to be the lead guy. I think this Illinois team would look completely different if the backcourt was it was for Illinois was Adam Miller and Tim Frazier. I think it would be completely different, completely different, and significantly worse. I think that goes to tell you how impactful having Ayu Desumo in the backcourt is, and the fact that he's improved his game, especially as a facilitator and shot creator, I mean, and the storyline is there. I mean, if you want to be technical about it too, if you want to go adding those kind of things in there, the kid came back to school specifically to fulfill his promise that he was going to bring Illinois back to the dance at some point before he left. He's about to do it. I mean, all of those things line up as to the point where I think Ayu Desumu should have been the Big Ten player of the year. I think out of all of these, like you said, I think Chris Duarte in the Pac-12 versus Evan Mobley, I think that one is extremely debatable as well. But if there was one that could have really grind my gears, I think it would be this one with Ayu Desumu being the guy who fell just behind Luka Garza, a guy who I don't think is better than Ayu Desumu is right now. And I think this makes it even more challenging for Io to win National Player of the Year as well, especially considering that, you know, Luca Garza, the winning effect he has on his team at Iowa, I don't think it's as big as the winning effect that Io has at Illinois. It was the point I was trying to allude to earlier. But the problem is that now, even if Io DeSumo was going to win that award, he's not even on the best team in that conference. But this is something that we're going to transition to. Illinois has a chance to lock up the final one seed. Now, Jalen and I both believe that Gonzaga, Michigan, and Baylor all have the one seeds locked up. And this is a question I want to have for Jalen to close out the episode. Is Illinois going to be the fourth team to grab the one seed? I think, I mean, I think it's Illinois, bro. I mean, they're the second best team in the best conference in basketball. 
I know we talked about it a little bit off camera that Alabama has a pretty good resume as well, but the SEC is probably like the third best conference behind the Big Ten and the Big 12. So when you mock that up, I mean, you've got wins over Ohio State, ninth in the country, wins over Michigan. That's huge. Um, when you look across the board, they've got good wins over Nebraska, a lower, a lower ranked team in the Big Ten, but still they beat Iowa. They've beat, big, uh, they've beat Penn State. That loss against Maryland is probably one of the more glaring losses on the season, but Maryland's so wishy-washy that I can't even say that I'm super surprised about that about them falling to them necessarily. They beat Purdue. I mean, when you look across the board, I mean, I just think I think it's Illinois, bro. I think I like. I just think that with you being the second best team in the best conference in basketball, bro, the best conference in basketball, whose resume is going to line up with Illinois right now? Like who out of the left, the teams that are left can really mess with Illinois resume when you have as many ranked victories as they have so far this season and has many big wins over big 10 competition. In my eyes, it's Alabama. And I think that there's a lot on the line for Illinois in this conference tournament. If for Illinois, they have to win the conference tournament in order to be a one seed. And I think it's, it's, it's not even a question at this point. Now looking at Alabama. So Alabama's quad one record is six and four. Quad two record, seven and one. Quad three record, eight and one. 22 and six overall, 16 and two in conference play. I believe that they have two less losses than Illinois in terms of conference play. They sweep Auburn, sweep Kentucky, beat Florida, beat Tennessee, sweep Georgia, sweep LSU, and they split with Arkansas. Now, Arkansas was a top 10 team at one point, but looking at some of their losses, they lose to Oklahoma and Missouri. At the time, they were both ranked, but also by a combined eight points. They lose to Arkansas by 15. I mentioned earlier, Arkansas was ranked. You lose to Clemson and Western Kentucky. Both of them, I believe, are going to be tournament teams this year. And your worst loss is Stanford. I would say Illinois' worst loss is Maryland. I think if they win the conference tournament, they're a lock as the one seed. I mentioned this with Illinois, it's not the case with Illinois. If they lose in the conference tournament, they're not going to be a one seed. Michigan's going to be the one seed, the lone one seed in the Big Ten. I have a hard time actually disagreeing with that. <laughs> I think that Illinois has a pretty good case because of the fact that they're in the best conference in basketball, but when you read out Alabama's resume, I think that just puts more pressure on both teams to really run the table throughout the conference, their conference tournaments. I think whichever team gets further through their conference tournaments, that through their conference tournament, that will be the deciding factor. But I think you could make an argument that it's Alabama or Illinois for the run to that final seed, that final number one seed, because those are the teams that I feel like have the better resumes of what the team of the teams that are left. Um, like I said, I think it might just come down to how they run the, uh, run the table through their conference tournaments and whoever falls out first, that's the team that's going to be on the outside looking in with one of those two seeds. So transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, which team do you believe will grab the last one seed in the NCAA tournament, Illinois 
Alabama, or another team. This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.